These conversations are brought to you by Reed Smith, the global law firm with more than 1,700 lawyers in 27 offices throughout the United States, Europe, Middle East, and Asia. Because Reed Smith believes interactive discussion can drive meaningful change. Reed Smith also believes that the practice of law has the ability to drive progress. They are focused on outcomes, are highly collaborative, and have deep industry insight that, when coupled with their local market knowledge, allows them to articulate and address your needs. You deserve purposeful, highly engaged client service that drives progress for your business. And Reed Smith looks forward to a conversation with you. Please note that opinions expressed in the Reed Smith conversations are personal opinions of the participants themselves and not intended to represent the views of their employers or other organizations to which they belong. What are values? There are really two major buckets of value or values. One is, how much is it worth? This refers to a thing's importance or its usefulness or its monetary worth. The other value, often stated in the plural, the other values describe standards of behavior, one's judgment of what's important in life, the lasting beliefs or ideals shared by members of a culture about what's good or bad, what's desirable or undesirable. These values have major influence on a person's behavior and attitude, and they serve as broad guidelines in all situations. In business, some common values are fairness or innovation, community involvement. We've been very lucky in that we have um, a mission that kind of expresses a value in, in itself. You know, our mission is ideas worth spreading. We, we try and share ideas that we think will somehow benefit the future in, in some way and nudge the world to a better direction or inspire people to find their better selves or, or something like that. And that very mission um, kind of has a value at the heart of it, <clears throat> the value that ideas matter, that sharing stuff matters, and it has attracted people who, who are excited by that thought. That's Chris Anderson, known as the curator of TED, the global media phenomenon. And this is episode one of the four-part Reed Smith conversation series. I'm your host, Susan Bird, with a group of business and thought leaders with strong opinions. I'll refer to their titles in this episode, but you may want to check out their impressive bios and also information about Reed Smith on our website, conversation360podcast.com. On this episode, we talk of both kinds of values and whether they matter, especially now. Ken Doctor, who's the founder of Newsonomics and a recognized guru of all things journalism, describes two values that intersect in the business of newspaper publishing during his days at Knight Ritter. It's really a set of parallel values that I learned as an editor um, in Knight Ritter Company uh, over a 21-year career and from, and from the newspaper industry. I kind of fell into that industry, but what the values taught me were, were, were two. And first and foremost for all of us in the newsroom and leading newsrooms was being mission-oriented. And that's what you often hear from nonprofits. So what is it you're trying to do every day when you come to work? And we, at Daily Newspaper, were very clear that we were trying to serve our communities, and I worked in three or four of them, 
um, every day and tell them what's going on, what the impact of that was, and uh, what was coming up. So that value of be uh, of informing and and as I came to think about it, not just informing but educating, so that people would actually learn more. Um, and over time, especially last years at the print newspaper, um, trying to interact more to find out what people knew, what they wanted to know. So you have that set of values, which are traditional civic values of an informed citizen in a democracy. Parallel to that, Knight Ritter being a for-profit company, um, building financial value. So the way our society works is businesses are built uh, by creating products and services that are uh, of interest to enough consumers that they're willing to, to pay for them. And if enough pay for them and if a business is well run, the business can do its job, pay its people, including journalists in this case, and uh, continue to grow. Some variation of these two parallel value sets operates within every industry, though, and some measure a values-driven organization primarily by its impact on others. One part of it um, is, you know, an organization that's that's not just driven by a, a sort of financial imperative, but is driven by the sort of how it does business, um, uh, and 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 so has a a set of principles, if you like, that that guide not just the way it works, but but the the impact in the way it works, the way it works has on on all the other stakeholders. That's John Fairhurst, executive director of programs for UBS Optimus Foundation. As for the belief-based values, some say operating from a set of long-held principles is the key to longevity for an enterprise. P.D. Villarreal who's Senior VP Global Litigation for GlaxoSmithKline, takes pride in the fact that GSK has been in business for over 300 years. You know, it has a very strong corporate culture that, uh, of course, you know, we want to make money, but it's a corporate culture that's also rooted in its underlying social purpose. That's ultimately why a company exists 10 years from now and 20 years from now and, 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 and over the generations because they're committed to uh, they have a culture, they have values, and I think that is probably the strongest evidence that values matter in the business world. But even if sticking to a set of principles carved out generations ago could guarantee longevity, is such a company the exception? Have the values that historically served as broad guidelines to behavior, have those values somehow lost their importance? Are they being ignored by a large percentage of people? And if they are, what does that mean? Is it a permanent shift? Should we care? There's evidence that lots of people don't care. They'll overlook bad behavior, sometimes even criminal behavior, if to do so means they get something else that they want. And some say that attitude is reflected in current politics. Somewhat pessimistic. There's this disconnect now, the, the ties that bind us with the rest of the world and with, the, with people all over the world are getting stronger, you know, all the time, you know, and contrast that with a politics that determinedly is looking inward, right, and, and ima- you know, looking to a, an imagined past of, you know, homogeneity and, uh, you, you know, exclusiveness. 
I think the task of politics is to try to bring out the best in people and not the worst in people. But is this a recent development? Peter Capelli, professor of management and director of the Center for Human Resources at the Wharton School, says that current politics is not the culprit. He says the concept of values-driven business was abandoned years ago. He says it was an ideological takeover of corporate governance that shifted companies' focus from being good to their employees and serving their communities and other stakeholders to being totally beholden to the money source, the shareholder. A generation or so ago in business schools and most everywhere, when we talked about corporate governance, uh, we talked about a stakeholder model. And the stakeholder model meant that the company had responsibilities to its stakeholders. One set were investors, but another set were customers. A third set was employees. And a fourth set was the community around them. That all gave way in the starting in the late 1980s to a very different kind of model, which was also driven by values, or you might say ideology. And this is sort of the rise of property rights and the view that there was really only one stakeholder, and that was the investors, and particularly the shareholders who owned the company, and that your responsibility was only to them. The result of this, only the investors matter approach. Well, Peter Capelli says, that's how we started rewarding executives. That's how we judged the success of companies. So I think now when you hear the phrase values-based companies, they are really just ones that are taking something like a different approach than the shareholder value approach. And it doesn't mean they've gone all the way back to the stakeholder model, but they've retreated a little bit from the model that says the only job a corporation has is to maximize shareholder value. But this different approach, the values-driven one that Peter Capelli says is now an exception to the rule, that's getting a lot of attention. Several business leaders I talked with identified particular companies as values-based, and they expressed their admiration. Tamara Box, managing partner, Europe and the Middle East, and the head of structured finance at Reed Smith, says her study of well-managed firms impressively highlighted the success of Unilever and its CEO, Paul Pullman, who she says led really from the front with the firm's values and created the whole purpose of the organization around those values. She says Unilever is remarkable that in all the ways that we might think about, you know, big blue chip companies, and they could be, you know, soulless and faceless, and yet they've managed to be very values oriented. And I think a lot of that has um, a huge tie in with what is the purpose of the business? What are they there to do? Tamara says they've incorporated those values into the business itself, differentiating themselves from thinking, well, we have core values. And then we have this whole thing we have to do to make money, you know, and that somehow they're very separate. In Tamara's eyes, that's the key to success. If you if you can connect with your employees based on their own values and their own sense of purpose and, you know, and marry that to the organization's values and sense of purpose, that gets people up in the morning and, you know, makes them more productive and gets them excited about their next meeting or their next project or their next opportunity. John Fairhurst talked about Unilever, too. I think Unilever has been 
you know, a, a really high profile and big example of an organization that has very consciously put a social um, agenda in, in its business. And, and and I think they've seen a, a lot of, you know, a lot of positives from that, not, not just in terms of their reputation and their, you know, how people perceive them, but also in, in looking through the organization that, you know, that they've seen uh, quite a lot of motivational benefits within the organization. I know that from speaking to people where, you know, they've seen their teams much more motivated to look at, well, you know, not just how can we solve cost, but how can we minimize wastage? Um, because that reduces our environmental footprint. There are those, however, who argue that the Unilever approach is not a sustainable one, evidenced by its recent effort to fight off a takeover bid from Kraft Heinz. That proposed merger underscored the ongoing tension between two different philosophies of capitalism. On the one side, Unilever CEO Paul Pullman champions values-based sustainable growth and earnings, and on the other side, Kraft Heinz is known for ruthless cost-cutting, aimed at increasing a company's near-term valuation, making investor rights primary, which, in the words of a recent New Yorker article, justifies a company doing just about anything so long as it's legal to increase a company's stock price, whether that be firing workers or polluting the environment. Now, Ranajoy Basu, a financial practice partner at Reed Smith, says that there are other big companies embracing the values-based side. Companies which have been traditionally perceived to be big corporate money-making giants, let's take Coca-Cola, for example, where, where they, they have run projects like the Cola Light Project, which talks about converting bottles and transforming them into sort of solar lights, doing what they do, but also translating what they do into making a social impact. So are these value-driven companies holdouts? Or, as Peter Capelli suggests, are they no different from the others, not so values-based, but they're intentionally playing both sides? Peter Capelli notes, Even when shareholder value became a big deal in their public image, uh, but you could see they were kind of trying to have it both ways. On the one hand, when pushed to do something, uh, they always had to justify it in terms of shareholder value. Um, but in the arguments to the broader public, it was always that we were, uh, look, we're good citizens, we're doing things for the community, we have foundations, all that kind of stuff. And again... Companies that, you know, close plants and move them overseas, um, and virtually all of the companies have been doing that, anybody with manufacturing, right? Um those are clearly not good things for the communities in which they operate. Uh, and they virtually all these companies have foundations and things as well. And they sponsor local charities and they get involved in uh, particularly these days green initiatives because they also save the company's money, you know. Um, so you can look at most of the fast food restaurants now. Walmart in particular, leading the way in green technology and trying to be ecological in their use of energy in particular. On the other hand, they're routinely bludgeoned for being bad employers and squeezing the employees in order to raise profits, right? So they're kind of doing both things at the same time. Business and thought leaders that I talked to disagreed that these good acts are evidence of companies simply playing it both ways. They feel values-driven behavior has never been more important. 
not because it reflects age-old principles, but because it's consistent with a new knowledge-based era, and it's genuine. Chris Anderson says, I absolutely do believe that values do need to be at the heart of of a successful modern company, whether it's a not-for-profit or a for-profit company. Um, And uh, it's because the world's changed and that we're we're no longer in the industrial age where value comes from, you know, a big set of assets that you just hire people as kind of drones to extract the value from. So the more that we are in this knowledge era where where value is created through um, the human mind and through human, human talents as opposed to through some mining machine that it, you know, or, or some owned physical asset where the people don't, perhaps don't matter so much. Um, value absolutely matters. When talking of how firms express their core values, a distinction is made between companies that do good works through traditional philanthropy and those that connect their core values to the product or service they provide. This connection of values to the core business they would say, is a departure from the traditional practice of supporting pet charities of someone in the C-suite, regardless of whether they had relevance to the company's product or service. Chris Anderson says, I think every business absolutely should should try, needs to try, and needs to do more than simply say, as has often been done, you know, we make money on this side and then we use the profits to do these corporate social responsibility programs. That, That sort of schizophrenia doesn't, isn't all that satisfying, I don't think. John Fairhurst tells how UBS Optimus is integrating philanthropy into the UBS skill set of designing and managing financial instruments. So, for example, they offer development impact funds that make it easy for high net worth individuals and foundations to invest in projects like Educate Girls, a program in India led by Safina Hussein a graduate of London School of Economics, and the investors have the opportunity to obtain a financial return as well. John says, It's an innovation. It's a, it's a new way of thinking about development, which is, which I think is, is opening a, you know, a new door for, for money to flow. Two, um, uh, it, it creates an ability to use money, not, not just to do grant money, but to use their sort of balance sheet, to use them, the capital they have um both individual clients and foundations to you know to use that those assets um that are often not deployed in pursuit of the missions that that people have safina hussein the founder and executive director of educate girls who in a decade has scaled that program to one covering 12,000 schools so far with 3.8 million beneficiaries she declares that the development impact model is ideal in that it sets clear business standards for success and clear rewards for meeting them. A great example of marrying the values-driven approach to the need for measurable outcomes. At Educate Girls, we've always struggled with the fact that how do we make sure that money translates directly into impact? And that's our outcomes-driven approach. And that led to the world's first development impact bond in education, which is a payment by results contract. So the entire organization in its DNA has delivery to outcomes. So that means that as a nonprofit, we're very different from other nonprofits that we have this incredible efficiency indicator in terms of our outcomes um, that is now embedded in the DNA of the organization. Rana Joy Basu says 
Although traditional philanthropy is helpful in regarding specific crises in the world, the emphasis now is on doing work that has social impact and is connected to the core practice or the core business. When he set up the firm's financial impact practice, it was important to him that it not be the kind of pro bono legal work that occasionally supplements one's real job within a law firm. I didn't want to dabble in it. The biggest transformation for us in terms of the impact finance practice is two things. One is how quickly it's grown. Um, and internally, it's amazing. We've got a massively committed team, but also how enthusiastic people are um, to contribute with their skills, whether it's tax, whether it's regulatory, whether it's uh, corporate, in my case, it's finance, to be able to apply their skills because they know at the end of the day, they are seeing and they're working on a project which creates social impact. In fact, many feel strongly that despite or maybe even because of the evidence of individuals and companies taking the easy route these days, ignoring basic rules or beliefs about right and wrong, it's critically important now that we make the effort to reaffirm our core values and remain true to them. When I asked Tamara Box, do values matter now, she said... I do think they matter now more than ever. And I think, um, you know, maybe our, our kind of political climate perhaps um, drives some of that. Uh, you know, be, being able to say to your, you know, your new and young employees that you know, this is the kind of culture we have, um, respect um, for these values is, is really critical, and that we are prepared as an organization to, you know, to be true to those values, um, to follow through. And even, frankly, if that's at odds sometimes with our pocketbooks, still um, firmly stick to those values. And that, that I think, is actually what, um, certainly what a lot of our talent, but also a lot of our clients, our customers, those who want to find that reason for engaging with us. They need to know you know, why you over another law firm? Um, and, and the reality is on, you know, pure sort of metrics, capability, you know, lots of those things, we will look just like everyone else. What will, you know, really will bring us together is that shared sense of community values, um, what's important, uh, which hopefully will include, you know, reaching a, an objective or a result together, but doing so in a way that we each trust will uh, align with our, our values. Tamara has a stunning example of a firm severing a relationship for what it viewed as a betrayal of its beliefs of right and wrong. Uh, last week, um, a client took a very public stand against a law firm around values. Um, and that, that client was Wallace Global Fund. They're a nonprofit investment vehicle. And they are dedicated to fighting injustice and promoting diversity, um, which sounds like that might make them um, uh, quite small or quite irrelevant. But in reality, in this world of ESG-driven investment, impact investment, uh, et cetera, uh, it's becoming an increasingly important component of every asset manager's uh, thinking. They fired their lawyers. Um, they wrote a letter to the chair of Morgan Lewis um, and expressed their profound disagreement with the advice that had been given by Morgan Lewis to President Trump, um, which they uh, said was 
not just simplistic and ill-founded, but also offered uh, a, quote, unprecedented invitation to corruption. It's certainly the first time I've seen anything quite so public, and this is the first time I've seen it be really over a values as opposed to, you know, perhaps a corruption or a malpractice or a negligence or, you know, sort of a, an issue that is is perhaps um, harder, um, le- less uh, difficult to to qualify and quantify than than this concept of values. So they got up in arms about a betrayal of the values they hold dear. That's consistent with history when we expressed commonly held values in various ways. For example, e pluribus unum is on all U.S. coins since the late 19th century. It means out of many, one. And it was proposed as the nation's motto on July 4th, 1776, to underscore American citizens as people with diverse interests who, in combination, form a nation that transcends the wishes of any one of the group. And the French motto, liberté, égalité, fraternité, articulates values held paramount by the French. And interestingly, those same three words have been adopted by other governments, including India, Denmark, and the Philippines. Corporations, too, project institutionally held values through mission statements like Google's Don't Be Evil, which was recently replaced by its mission statement to organize the world's information and make it universally acceptable and useful. So the issue is, do they live what they say? Chris Anderson says they really need to to survive and even thrive in the future, and he wants to help them. We're definitely interested in building relationships with values-driven companies. I mean, I I think it absolutely is the way that companies will distinguish themselves in in future by being able to really clearly know their purpose, their their social purpose beyond um, making money. And um, to be able to articulate that and authentically believe that and work towards that. The rules have changed and what you give away is different now than it used to be. It actually, there is often a case to adopt a supreme generosity strategy, for want of a better word. Give away the best that you can and be amazed at how this spreads around the world and how it boosts your own reputation and how people respond by giving you things back. Um, and the things we got back were, um, you know, people becoming our marketing friends, if you like, like sending these talks free of charge to all of their friends or to new speakers applying to come and speak free of charge or um, and many other ways in which people wanted to help advance the, 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 the mission of TED, for example, by translating our content into many other languages, which is amazing to see. So what about individuals? We tend to adopt the values of our parents and peers And later, we may replace them with standards of behavior we've decided more accurately reflect our personal code of right and wrong. So when people decry the loss of values, they're often mourning the fact that some individuals have replaced those communally held values like liberté, égalité, fraternité, with what is valuable to them personally, without regard to the community. People talk of the rise of narcissism, nepotism, and nihilism in the United States, a far cry from e pluribus unum. And those negative traits are rooted, something, in greed. P.D. Villarreal tells us that that's not ultimately what drives people. It's not enough just to be greedy. Businesses like to talk a lot about 
motivation, right? How you motivate uh, people. How do they get up in the morning? You know, what keeps them going? Listen, money is not what does it. Yes, money's important. We need money. It's a great thing. But the real thing that keeps people working hard for an organization, especially when the organization is in crisis and trouble, are the values, right? The sense of mission. What are we here for? What is our purpose? Um, I think, you know, all of us, right, search, have always searched for meaning. And I think the, the most effective organizations, whether it's just political organizations or business organizations, are, you know, survive and are successful because they're able to articulate and have the people in the organization accept, you know, a set of underlying values, a, a common sense of purpose and mission. In fact, there is general agreement that today's recruits, especially millennials, place importance on the evidence of values-based business. Now, Peter Capelli disagrees. He doesn't think millennials should be credited for this focus on causes. First, just to bust a bit of a myth here, if you look at the data on um, employees born in different uh, time periods, the baby boomers, at least when they were entering the labor force, actually expressed more concern about these social issues than anybody born recently does. There's a sharp decline after the baby boomers, and there's actually not any compelling evidence that the kids today are more concerned about this than the kids a while ago. But many others say millennials are, in fact, much more focused on social interests than their predecessors were. And employers can't fake it when they're trying to recruit these young people. The millennials are pretty wise to that. You know, they're they're not going to be fooled by your parading, um, you know, some uh, ethnic minority and and female lawyers in front of them. And then when they get there, you know, it turns out that that was it. You know, so they really do their diligence. They look on your website. They ask for the statistics um, about your inclusion, how you deal with um, the LGBTQ community, what are you doing with respect to disability? You know, those things actually matter uh, to the millennials, to, to, to frankly, you know, a number of our, um, you know, employee bases. And so I think we all have to think harder uh, about how we show that shared value. Chris Anderson tells of a story of Elon Musk and his decision to give away what could be thought of as some of Tesla's crown jewels, its patents. I was really struck actually by a comment made by Elon Musk um, about a year ago, I think, when he, he had just announced to the world that they were opening up Tesla's patents to oh, anyone. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and he was asked for the reasons why why they would do this, and um, and quite apart from the fact that you know Tesla's mission is to accelerate the electrification of transport, and that therefore this this would help that mission. What he went on to say, and I think this from a business point of view, this is probably the biggest single driver. He said, "Look, he said if you want to persuade the world's best engineers to work for you 100 hours a week, it's much easier." to ask them to do that for a cause and for a corporation. Maybe we're not so different after all, we humans, in our efforts to build a set of values that can serve as guideposts in our lives, showing the way to what's ultimately important to us. P.D. Villarreal sees it this way. You know, we recently came back from 
a trip to Cambodia, which is a marvelous place, and saw the great temples in Angkor Wat and the surrounding communities, which are just a, an incredible thing. I always, you know, come back from places like that with the same sort of general thoughts that, oh my God, there's such incredible variety and and so many wonderful things that that we people have built in. And, and and yet, on, and then, and then, but then on another level, you know, it also shows how we are the same, right? That human beings have always been the same and are the same now, regardless of how different their environments are. They all want the same things, you know. And um, there's a temple in Cambodia where, you know, for I don't know, a hundred yards, there's a, there are some sculptures, you know, carved into the walls, and they're sculptures of everyday life in Cambodia in, I think, about year 1000. Um, and, you know, there are people, the sculptures show people making noodles and, you know, betting on rooster fights and, uh, you know, and having a baby. And, and, and they are recognizably human, right? They're recognizably us. You can see us in them, you know, and they've all, <laughs> it is a powerful reminder of the commonality of humanity over the over a thousand years ago uh, with different ethnicity and languages and all of that and yet there we are we staring at ourselves in the temple on that note we'll end this first episode of the reed smith conversation series If this is the first time you're listening to a Conversation 360 podcast or to the Reed Smith Conversation series, please subscribe to Conversation 360 podcast on your podcast app of choice. This is the first of the Reed Smith Conversation series, and there are more with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the news about Conversation 360 podcasts and this Reed Smith Conversation series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast. That's C-O-N-V as in Victor, 360 Podcast. And my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.